There's a bright golden haze on the meadow. There's a bright golden haze on the meadow. The corn is as high as a elephant's eye, and it looks like it's climbing clear up to the sky. Oh, what a beautiful morning! Oh, what a beautiful day! I got a beautiful feeling. Everything's going my way. Hey, everybody! Welcome back to the movie shelf. I'm Eric, and I'm Sana. And today we are talking about the 1955 movie musical Oklahoma. Uh, why did you? Why did we want to talk about this movie, Sana? Um, I. A few reasons. I think one of the big ones, though, is you saw it was available on Disney Plus, and you thought it'd be a good opportunity to revisit it. Um, we've both seen it years ago; hadn't seen it for a while, and yeah, it's it been quite a while. Seems like a good movie to kick off the summer too, because it takes place during the warmer months. True. True. Yeah, we um, we own the Blu-ray of Oklahoma, and we have for years. Uh, it has been years since we've seen it. Um, so on on Disney Plus, they just started uh, showing this as an option recently, and um, so I wanted to look at the Blu-ray, and I knew that there was a difference between the two versions that were offered on it. So when you get the Blu-ray, you have basically two discs of Blu-ray and two discs of DVD, and the first says the Todd Ao version. And the second disc is the Cinemascope version. And then the DVDs are just the same things. Um, and so we were kind of interested in visiting that and taking a look at that. And then also, like you said, reassessing the movie itself. Um, so we we started with the commentary on the Todd A.O. version. And we were reminded that the Todd A.O. is a little odd, isn't it? Yeah, I actually don't think I'd ever seen the Todd A.O. version I don't think so anyway. Do you remember what your first experience was with Oklahoma? Like how old you were when you saw it? Uh, I saw it with you for the first time. Okay. I think the first time I had seen it was when I was older too. Um, It was with one of my good friends named Jenny. And it was kind of fun because um, the lead role, Shirley Jones um, or Lori, actually has very similar coloring to Jenny, so it's kind of fun because it's a movie she could kind of see herself in, in a way. Um, And I watched it with her and my youngest sister, Laura, who is um, nine years younger than me. And so she was kind of a little kid when we first watched it, and it was just funny... um, because we were driving back from, like, we had taken a little mini road trip, just the three of us. And on the way back, we were listening to Sirius XM radio. And it was, like, some Broadway channel where they would do either Broadway scores, I think, or movie scores. And it was just the instrumental overture. And my youngest sister, who was, like, a little kid at the time, she was 
way more familiar with Oklahoma than I was. I had never seen it. And she somehow knew the musical pretty well. And she was just singing all the words to it. And she has a really high-pitched voice. And so it was really kind of funny if you can imagine a little kid just, like, singing the title song, Oklahoma. (laughs) I don't know. It it was a good memory. And it was fun, again, watching it with my friend Jenny because it's like, I don't know, costumes are fun. It's a good girls movie in in a way or has a lot of stuff for that. But, yeah, I think I had seen the Cinemascope version. (laughs) And I don't even remember what we watched together the first time. But when when I saw it with you, I was... Like, going into it, I was kind of, like, skeptical, or I don't know if that's the right word. but You know, it's a musical, and they are... I, I didn't think I was going to be super interested in it, and I think it definitely won me over by the end. Um, and uh, I think revisiting it now has been really fruitful, too. Yeah. But you mentioned that you think you saw the Cinemascope version with your friend. I think so. When we watched it together for the first time, I'm guessing that's what we watched. Mm-hmm. Because um, the Blu-ray release has really pushed the Todd Ayo version as the version to watch. And that makes sense. Because basically um, what it is is like a special widescreen, like, you know, fancy roadshow version of the movie that was made originally to be like the premiere version of it. So in 1955 when it was released... Like the Todd A.O., which, you know, the, the entrepreneur is Michael Todd, and then it's American Optical Company that, that made the technology. So it's Todd A.O. And uh, basically his idea was he wanted to make a, like, in, you know, in, um, in, what's the word? Um, immersive, immersive experience. Yeah. So the, the screen curves around the audience, and y- you look like, you know, it seems like you're in the movie, and they had done this previously with a technology called Cinerama. And then with um, with that, though, you had to have three cameras pointing three different directions. So the Todd A.O. version, it was like, I think I can do that, but I can do it with one camera. One great big lens. One, one and... huge lens, yeah. So he came up with this technology and funded it and all that. And uh, yes, you could create this immersive, curved experience using one camera Uh, It kind of, the effect that it gives is sort of a bug eye lens in order to do that, though. Yes, like you said, they really push this version. And I imagine if you see it on a special screen specifically for the Tadeo films, I'm sure it'd be, like, cool. Yeah, I would love to. You can't see it that way anymore, but... Yeah, and we don't... So the thing that is nice about it is the colors are very bright. Everything looks very clean and clear. And um, I don't know, it just is a very clean looking, detailed looking film. But I don't think it is the version to see, just my opinion. Now it is just an opinion because we read some piece by some Wall Street person or someone in... Wall Street um, Journal. Wall Street Journal who said... Ah, oh, this was like a revelation to see the Tadeo version. I totally disagree because um, it's it's got a higher frame rate. It's thirty frames per second. Yeah. Instead of the regular twenty four. That's and the so big problem for what me. What you're going to get is a soap opera, daytime television look, and then 
in a lot of shots when you're looking at the edges of the screens it looks strange like you could tell it's trying to be corrected for something that was meant for a curved screen yeah and so it's just weird it's not i don't know eric how how would you describe some of the scenes on the tadeo version well the worst thing is the 30 frames per second yeah so like for example We'll talk about the scene with the Kansas City song. Mm -hmm. And um, if you watch the cinemascope of the Kansas City song, you will notice, and this is this is like my single complaint about the cinemascope version, you'll notice that their feet are cut off yeah, at certain parts. Yeah, um, disappointing. And if you watch it on the Tadeo version, it pretty much shows their feet and shows their full body the, the whole time. Which is great for the dancing, and it, I think it works better. But with the 30 frames per second, you get this effect. You mentioned like a soap opera look. Mm -hmm. And you can do the same thing on your TVs at home with the motion smoothing. Yeah. A lot of TVs come with motion smoothing standard, and it kind of creates an effect where it looks like there's more frames per second because everything is smoother. Um, but it, for whatever reason, daytime TV was always filmed that way. And so it, in my mind, it's, it's channeling daytime TV. It's not channeling, this is cinema or a movie. It's like, you're watching daytime TV. And in fact, I kept telling you the effect with their dancing is you feel like because the depth of field is so much better, you feel like you're on the set instead it's not of a like, good thing. yeah, instead of watching the movie, like a finished film, it looks like the dailies that you would get yeah, the rushes the rushes and it, it looks like you're on the set it hasn't been finalized we've i don't remember what movie we were seeing or what special feature but it was something where they were just looking at the rushes of something and we were just watching because it was a special feature and it's like we were like it's amazing that they can see this and they can be there and see whatever the actor's doing and envision what it will be as a movie because it has such a different feel when it's 30 yeah. frames per second or has a motion smoothing. And um, when in that, everything's up to date in Kansas City. Gene Nelson's dancing looked almost rubbery to me in a very strange way. And um, if you get the Blu-ray, you don't even have to wait to until that scene because it's on the disc menu right it is and you'll see it and it's just bizarre and for both discs like the cinemascope and the tadeo for whatever reason the um menu scenes are in tadeo and you can tell yeah and yeah it just makes it seem cheaper and not not as quote cinematic but and again, I would love to see it in its original format on a Tadeo. Yeah, that'd be fun. I wonder if I'd still be bothered by the frames. I and, think I probably would. It's funny because when we were watching, um, Eric said it had a really high uh, frames per second rate. And I was looking it up because I was like, I wonder how much it is. And it said, I was like, what is the Tadeo um, frames per second rate? And it said 24. I was like, that's weird. It says 24 moved on and then later on when we were watching the special features it said oh they did 30 and i went back to that original search and it said generally it was 24 but for oklahoma it was 30 and like i just hadn't read far down enough to see what specifically was for oklahoma so eric was, was right so um, then you learned that i was always right 
Well, I learn that all the time, pretty no. much. Um, but we saw another movie recently that had the, um, like, it wasn't Tadeo, was it the Cinerama? Cin- yeah. Yeah. We, we saw recently um, How the West Was Won, and it was filmed for Cinerama, and it had the same thing going on with the kind of fisheye look. But the frame rate wasn't as bad. But Frame rate wasn't as bad, but the one thing we will say for um, Zinnemann in Oklahoma is with um, How the West Was Won, it was almost entirely just, you know, wide shots with the actors far away and you never got too close to anyone because I guess they want to show off like, oh, I feel like I'm in this big world and they maybe don't want you to feel like wow i'm really in this person's face because they're doing a close-up it's such a big screen yeah yeah but with tade or with with this one um zinnemann who i guess his favorite movie was the passion of joan of arc from 1924 28 i don't remember but um that's like i haven't seen it but it's famous for its close-ups on faces and he did the same thing in this and i think that saved the warped look of on the edges because it's like it wasn't all just weird not weird but vista shots where it'd be kind of noticeable along the edges and how the west was won like everything is a long shot yeah yeah Yeah, zinnemann had had more sense um because this this was the first todd ao feature picture and he could have done the same thing where it's like the whole point is to immerse you. So let's, you know, let's make everything a long shot. So it's all vistas, but he didn't do that. Nope, he didn't. And it's a better movie, I think as yeah. a result. So the Todd AO is also a 70 millimeter format. So the film itself is larger than a cinemascope film. Cinemascope is wide, is widescreen, but it's on 35 millimeter film. So originally, you know, a 35 millimeter film would be, uh, basically a square format, but then when they when TV came in and people started staying home and not going to the theaters, the first one of the first ideas they had was to do widescreen, so you would have this special format to see only in theaters, and that's where CinemaScope came in and others like Vista Vision. Um, they took 30, 35 millimeter film, the same film, but basically the width of two frames was just one frame. And so it was widescreen that way. And then others started coming in with 70 millimeter film and doubling the size of the film. So there's m- literally more content. Like think of it like pixels. If, if it was digital, it would be double the pixels because it's double the, or I guess quadruple the size. Um, and that's another reason the uh, Todd AO looks better. Like visually looks cleaner than the CinemaScope version. Um, except for the problems that we've already outlined about it. My only, and it's not a huge problem, but issue with the CinemaScope version is, I mean, the colors just aren't as nice. It's a little more yellow, but it's like, eh, it kind of goes with Oklahoma, I guess, somehow. Yeah. But, you know, it's kind of funny talking about, like, okay, here are the things that they're doing to try to compete with television and home viewing, because we're kind of going through a similar thing now. It's like Yes, we are. It's like, how are movies going to survive, especially movie theaters, because everyone's just watching things at home, and it makes you wonder if they're going to try some gimmick, or if there's already some gimmick out there I don't know about, that they're like, oh, you gotta go to the theater to only 
get this experience there, something better, but we'll see. Yeah. And I think it, we are going through something like that. And theaters have already been... I mean, theaters are always constantly changing. I mean, the push for years and years was to make the theater more like a living room, which never made much sense to me. Yeah. Because it's like, if you go to a theater, you want a theater experience there. True. Um, but, you know, the reclining chairs and a, a lot of them ha- are, have like a lounge feel to them. And you can I don't get know how dinner. I feel about that. I know a lot of people like them. I a lot of people like them, fun, and I've, but... I, it's fun, and I've always, like, I like the reclining chairs, but I've always felt that you should, it should feel like a theater, though. I kind of like it when it's, it feels more like an event when it's a packed house for something. Yeah, that's what I like. And you get, I mean, as long as people are mostly respectful, it's fun to hear people laugh at things, or, yep. I don't know. <laughs> yep. Be disappointed at the end if you were also disappointed by something like, wow, that sure was hyped and it was dumb in the end. <laughs> but. Yeah. So the, um, the CinemaScope version is the version that we preferred. We saw them both. We watched some. So each disc had a different commentary, which I was really happy about. You get two commentaries. Um, and uh, the only problem is with the Blu-ray release, they were pushing the Todd AO so much that they didn't really restore the CinemaScope to the extent that they could have. So it doesn't look as good as it could. And also, the version on Disney Plus is... The, okay, the version on Disney Plus is the Todd AO. We, check, we checked that too. Yeah, which is but strange to me, but... One of the reasons we love physical media, everything on physical media looks better than if it had, was just streaming. Yeah. And... In this case, though, <laughs> since it's streaming, I think it kind of lessens the effect of the 30 frames per second a little mm-hmm. over the Blu-ray disc. So if you're seeing the Todd AO version on Disney+, Plus, it's probably not going to be as drastic as the, the Blu-ray disc. I, I didn't think it was, but you'll still notice it looks a little odd. Yeah, but don't think you can just go on there and think, oh, Sana and Eric were exaggerating. It's not that bad. It's like, yeah, we know it's not that bad. Go out and buy the Blu-ray and then just to see that we're actually right. Um, <laughs> you know, some people don't ever notice. Like, we were talking about the that. motion smoothing that comes standard on a lot of TVs. Some people never turn that off and they don't even notice that it looks different. And that blows my mind. I can never get over that. And I try not to sound too snobby about that, too. But it is very weird because it's like distracting to me it would bother me to see a movie i love with that feature because it'd be like oh my gosh everything's just wrong and it's (laughs) this is not the same thing at all but um recently i wanted to watch the devil wears prada because i had never seen it and you know people sometimes talk about it and spoiler alert we didn't we didn't really like it but the (laughs) whole time we watched it our TV saturation sometimes does this weird thing where it just gets way hyped up and it was that way and we didn't know it. And the whole time we were criticizing, like, wow, they did this weird filter on this movie. And Yeah, I thought it was the cinematographer. We thought it was a choice. Yeah. I mean, it's still a dumb movie, but, <laughs> like, we watched the entire thing with that, and it's kind of silly. But yeah, while we're... We felt like idiots at the end, because yes. we have been criticizing it the whole movie. Yep, that's kind of typical for me. <laughs> <laughs> I get really irate about something I don't understand, and then I'm just, I was just wrong about it. 
But anyway, there's a lot to like about this movie, though. What what are some of the things you like, Eric? Well, um, I love Rodgers and Hammerstein's music, and I think that that shines in this movie. Um, the director, Fred Zinnemann, is uh, someone who's known for making some great pictures, like High Noon and um, From Here to Eternity and A Man for All Seasons. I mean, really good movies, very serious dramas. And they brought him in to be the director because they wanted that element brought into the musical. Because there are some interesting dramatic elements to the musical. And I like that about it because he has kind of a restraint in his direction. And a lot of the times it's just focused on the actors' faces it's kind of funny. A lot of people, we've learned, this is not something I was aware of until Eric tweeted about it. He said, you know, this movie is weirdly underrated. And a lot of people were like, yeah, it's bad. Like, here are the reasons it's bad. And one of them was like, he didn't, Zinnemann didn't know what to do with the singers while they were singing. And to be honest, I've never even noticed that there was any kind of problem in those scenes. Like, we recently saw one of the songs I love from Carousel, um, If I Loved You, and yeah, the actors are just standing there, and it's not close up on either of them, and it's not, the camera's not moving either, but with Oklahoma, it's fine, it's just, you know, camera's just showing them singing, and it's, I mean, doesn't seem that different from, like, for example, um, I guess would be Vincent Minnelli on um, St. Louis. What's that? Meet me in St. Louis. Meet me in St. Louis with like Judy Garland singing "Boy Next Door" or whatever. Yeah. Like it's just you know focus on her singing. Let the let the song let the be music the star. speak for itself. And you yeah. have great voices and it's like pretty costumes, nice looking people. It's not really something to complain about in my mind. And I didn't even see it as a problem, and I'm not sure what they're wanting to happen. Maybe something a la uh, Murder on the Orient Express with Kenneth Branagh, where it like goes above their heads and looks down at them, <laughs> <laughs> or something like that. That movie is like a little, for much. some reason, the example of crazy camera angles for no like real apparent reason. Yeah, like, I, I don't want to trash that movie because I actually like it, but I do think of that movie anytime I think of like this director or cinematographer went a little wild with the camera angles. I think of that one. I think of a Christmas Carol, the Jim Carrey one, oh but goodness, that yes. one is like we're kind of sh- that one's for gimmicky reasons, yeah. and the Murder on the Orient Express is just I don't know why. And well, I I already mentioned Zinnemann could have went gimmicky directions because this was the first Todd A.O. feature. That's true. And so he, like, he could have been like, oh, I'm going to show off the format and it's going to be, like, swoops and... Make you're the gonna audience see feel a, sick. You're going to see a lot of wide vista shots. and Yeah, and I'm going to immerse you into the Oklahoma landscape. But he doesn't do that. He's very restrained. And yeah. I, you know, I like the way that the music numbers are staged because there's really not... Uh, a lot to it except for the music and the um, choreography which is done by uh, Agnes DeMille who's a a great choreographer who worked on other things like Copeland's Rodeo (laughs) Uh, so she's you know she's done great things and she did the choreography both for the stage production and for the movie and those things shine versus the 
direction, but the direction's never bad. It's very um, solid. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm with you, and I uh, something I really appreciate about Oklahoma. I mean, we we're talking about letting the songs shine. You couldn't really ask for two better singers than Shirley Jones and Gordon McRae, right? Yes, yeah, they're incredible. Yeah, no complaints. And usually with the musical, like, especially, I don't know, there will be someone I'm like, oh, that could be a little better, or that person could be better. But of those two leads, it's it's great. Um, yeah, they're they're great singers, and I can't imagine anybody doing the role of Curly better than Gordon McRae. No. Because he just has that voice. Very effortless singer. Um, and then Shirley Jones has a great story, doesn't she, about how she was cast? Yeah. Yes, she, um, I, I don't remember why, she just flew into New York and she was about to... She was on vacation. Oh, she was family. on vacation? Well, she was about to embark on, you know, starting college and she wanted to be a veterinarian um, and but she had been a, like a singer. She she sang in her Methodist church choir ever since the age of six. Had voice lessons, and so I guess one of her friends or someone in New York knew her to be a you know talented singer. And said, oh, you should try out for one of Rodgers and Hammerstein's open auditions. They're always looking for people in the chorus, and she's like, I don't know. And she went and did it. And um, I think it was Richard Rodgers who said, you know, like. Hey, can you hang around? I need to get Hammerstein to, to hear this, and so um, got him to come, and they heard her, and um, she didn't know a whole lot about musicals, didn't know the words, and or, but they had the score for her, they had the orchestra for her to try out with, and they were so impressed that she was like the first and last person to ever go under a personal contract with them, and so you know she got her start in several musicals eventually had her film debut with Oklahoma. I think it was only a year later too. Yeah, she was only 19. And yeah, so she was, I think she was in South Pacific or... Now as far as my complaints go and she says Zinneman was like an actor's director and she felt very good that she got her start with him and it's funny because a lot of actors apparently got their start with him um, the only ones I can think of off the top of my head are, um, D well, I say I can remember. On the waterfront, who's the... Rod Steiger? Or, no, no. Yeah, Rod Steiger. Rod Steiger was, got his start in film with Zinnemann. Yes, with a film, and then, um, Marlon Brando also got his start with him. Because On the Waterfront was his... No, that's, that's Elia Kazan. Um... Yeah, let's see. I don't know what the movie was, but he got to start with him. Let's see. Career as a director. Um, let's see. I mean, it doesn't really matter. So Marlon Brando got started with Zinnemann and Rod Steiger mm -hmm. got started with Zinnemann. And they were both of the same method school. Um, so that's interesting. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Um... Anyway, I'm, yeah, I'm just trying to look at it and see, but it doesn't really... Oh, yeah, Montgomery Clift. Clift was another one. And he's of the same method school, too, so... Yeah. We can see who Zinnemann likes to work with. Marlon Brando, actors. it was The Men, the 1950. The Men, okay, that's right. Yep. And then Rod Steiger got started in Teresa, right? Yes, 1951. good memory. They, were, they had both done acting 
before, but I think their film start was with Cinnamon. Mm-hmm. And also this uh, Shirley Jones, who, by the way, um, she does one of the uh, blah, blah, blah. She does one of the audio commentaries, the one yeah. on the Tadeo. And she seems like a very um, nice, solid lady, like very um, intelligent. She's still alive. She's uh, really nice seeming. Yeah, she seems really nice. Like she never really got too big of a head or anything like that. And, and just... she really was just picked off the street. I mean, she was on a family vacation and mm-hmm. wasn't even planning on being an actress or a singer. Yeah, it's it's very cool. I mean, I can see when you hear her voice, you can see why she sounds amazing. Oh yeah, and you know more than holds her own. Um, it's it's funny because. Um, I learned not too long ago that um, my gra- my great grandfather was a roommate of Richard Rogers at Columbia University, um, so that was kind of that's cool. cool. Wasn't he uh, the head of Columbia? That University? was his father. So okay. my great great grandfather. Um, and then his son went there and roomed with Richard Rogers. Yep, yep. It's pretty cool. Yeah, these cool little connections in family history sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) My only great-grandpa was a horse thief. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, Shirley Jones, we love her singing. We love her as a person. She's got this great naivety that comes across on screen. Um, She's she's lovely, and we, we both agreed that she looks like kind of a homespun version of Grace Kelly. Yeah really does like similar face shape yeah. coloring and yeah like yeah you know, le- like a less elegant version of grace kelly yeah more approachable but but her acting left something to be desired in the movie, yeah definitely. and it was her debut and i don't think she always acted that way it was i mean and it might just be personal taste but it's like it was just a lot and i told erica remind me of vivian Lee in gone with the wind just a very affect to her voice and it's just a lot the accent's pretty forced yeah but anytime she sings all is forgiven all is forgiven yep (laughs) but Uh, and she's supposed to be really simple too so i mean it kind of works for the character it makes me really not like the character or sympathize with her because i'm just like wow what an idiot and I mean that's most of the people in the movie though most of the people in a lot of movies it's like um, I don't know their problems are of their own doing and you and I often feel like people get in the way of their own happiness just because they won't communicate um, and yeah. it's, I mean that's just typical conflict in a movie or musical that's got to be the most used romantic trope in all of movie dumb is the like we're gonna start this whole conflict because we refuse to communicate properly to one another yeah and it's silly because it's just like i asked judd to the dance and i'm upset about it because i don't know why i shouldn't have asked him i should have expecting curly to like be really jealous and then and then ask her but then it backfires, and he asks Aunt Eller instead. <laughs> well, I think he was planning on taking Aunt Eller along anyway. Like, she, he, he yeah. or she said, oh, you know, I'll take both of you. Why not? Like, it's just nice. And But I don't know why 
Um, she thought it'd be a good idea to say yes to Judge. She should have just said, no, I'm going with Curly. Yeah, the, uh, it doesn't make any sense, but she's kind of like, you know, foolish young love or whatever. Yeah. Um, the commentary had kind of an interesting thing to say about Judd, though, uh, that I think plays out thematically in the movie pretty well, where Judd, he doesn't look like someone who she would be attracted to at all. And maybe, you know, if he, if he were cast differently, maybe it would be a little bit more believable. But um, he represents this kind of, like, I know what I'm doing like I'm experienced, stable, uh, but I've seen things that you wouldn't know about because you're naive, and that is a little bit intriguing to her. Um, and I think like like he represents that side of things. You know, it's funny because um, we were talking when we were watching the audio or listening to the audio commentary. They were talking about Paul Newman cast as blah, 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 blah. And I thought it was Curly. You thought it was Judd. I actually looked it up, and um, it was Curly that they yeah. were thinking about. I don't remember if I told you that. Yeah, it was Curly. I looked that up, too. And they didn't cast Paul Newman because he's not he, a singer? he wasn't a singer. Yeah, and yeah, they, it was really thing. important that, that he be a singer. Yes, it's not like... La La Land, where we just grab Ryan Reynolds. No, what's his name? Ryan Gosling. Yeah, yeah. Um, they almost cast James Dean too. Hmm. He he screen tested and they liked his performance, but they wanted a singer again. James Dean seems a little young too. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, um, what else? Uh, there are other actors that. So the first time I saw Oklahoma, I. Th- I mean, I know I've seen It's a Wonderful Life before, so I've seen Gloria Graham, but um, is it Graham? Graham? Yeah, Graham. Gloria Graham. Um, but I didn't remember or know she was the same person like Violet as, I think that's her name, in It's a Wonderful Life. Um, like, I just saw her in Oklahoma, didn't know she had this history of being a femme fatale and... Um, that was her bread and butter. Was I know. She was I in didn't know. This was my introduction to her, and I hated her. Yeah. I thought, oh my gosh, like, this character is stupid, and, <laughs> like, it's so messed up that, like, all these guys are going to be with her when she is clearly, like, unintelligent and maybe not all there, and, like... I don't know, but... And then when I learned and saw her in a few other movies, or at least one other movie, I was like, oh, she's totally different. That's just all an act. But then I more recently learned that, A, she was apparently really worried about this role and not being able to sing very well. And also she had, like, her upper lip was paralyzed because of too many cosmetic surgeries. And so that wasn't just, like, I'm going to be funny for this role. And that made me feel bad about it. And so, ultimately, I returned to my original opinion, which is I don't think she should have been cast in this in this role. I don't think it was probably good for her career. In fact, I don't... I mean, they say it wasn't good for her career because people didn't like seeing her in it and also... Like, it just showed how much things had changed. And it's like, eh, it's just sad now. She was a jerk on set, too, by That's... all accounts. And there, there was something about how it hurt her career because pe- people realized she wasn't very nice to work with. 
Yeah, that's kind of sad. Yeah, it like, is. I mean, the role is actually, like, funny in places, but it's also just so bizarre. Just, like, her face doesn't, like, move all that much. And her... I didn't realize that she had her upper lip paralyzed at this point. It's sad. Um, Because she used to do this thing, like, if you see her in It's a Wonderful Life, 1947. This is a 1955 movie, so, you know, a few years earlier. um, She kind of has this weird upper lip thing going on, but... I didn't they say I, it looked it always looked to me that she stuffed well, her lip said. with cotton balls. And lo and behold there you know after I had thought that I read and apparently that's exactly what she did. She stuffed yeah. her upper lip with cotton balls. And then she got um plastic surgery and the plastic surgery went wrong and paralyzed mm. her upper lip. And so it wasn't I mean funny enough it wasn't all that different from how she normally was but it was a little more pronounced. Yeah. Uh, and it it is very it creates a very odd effect for her character who's supposed to be this young dumb lady who you know as the song <laughs> says who can't say no yeah so all you know any man who comes and advances her way she's just like I never think about any man unless I'm with him or yeah well one of the I mean she makes me laugh in the movie yeah. I, I agree with you that I wish I honestly wish that. She was cast differently. I don't really agree with the casting choice. But she does make me laugh. Yeah. Uh, the part that always cracks me up is um, when, uh, what's his name? Gene Nelson's character. Um, yeah, good memory. Gene what, Nelson. What's his name? What's his name in the movie? I don't remember. Anyway, the guy who comes from Kansas City, um, mm-hmm. you know, comes back to town from after visiting Kansas City. He went there to get $50 so he could marry uh, Ado Annie. Will, Will Parker. Parker. That's his name. So he gets $50 in Kansas City so he can marry Ado Annie because Ado Annie's <laughs> dad tells him that's what he's got to have. He's got to have 50 bucks uh, to his name. And so he gets it, except he doesn't know how to keep his hands on it because he ends up buying a bunch of stuff with the $50. Presents. And he he says, the person who sold me this stuff said it would be worth more than $50. Uh, But anyway, so he goes back to Ado Annie, or Gloria Graham's character, and uh, says, let's get married. And then he asks her, you know, when would you like to get married? And she says, August 16th. And he says... August 18th? I I think it was 16th. Whatever the date was. And he and he says, "Oh, why is that?" And she says, "Because that's the first time I I was kissed." And he says, "Oh, I don't remember that." And she says, "You weren't there." <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. She's. I kind of like that she can't keep her mouth shut. Well, and the other yeah. thing I also I do like about her is when he first gets back from Kansas City, he's like. I won $50 because he does rodeo stuff. And he's like, I won $50. And she's like, well, that's that's great. $50. And, like, just happy for him. And he's like, you know what that means, don't you? And basically is, like, reminding her, oh, when I get $50, I can marry you. But she has no clue. She's just like, that's great, $50. <laughs> it's like it doesn't mean anything to her. Yeah, it's kind yeah. of funny. And then she's pursued by... Um, Hakeem, Ali, Ali yeah. Hakeem. Mm-hmm, the peddler man. Right, the peddler man who travels around Oklahoma and... From Persia. And he he's interesting to me because, well, he's played by 
what's his name? I need to have the actors' names up here because I can't remember anything. That's okay. Um, you know, the commentary. Points Eddie out Albert. That, Eddie Albert. Thank you. El- Eddie Albert Heimberger, and he dropped the Heimberger because everyone called him Hamburger. Yeah, and probably another reason he dropped it was because, as the commentary points out, he was known as this like all-American actor, and then he's portraying a Persian in this movie and that's kind of interesting but I like him a lot he's probably the funniest part of the movie or one yeah. of them he's and he, got some good lines so in my mind there's there are two characters who have any idea what's going on in the world <laughs> and <laughs> one of them is Aunt Eller and she's pretty much um, omniscient she, you know, she knows everything yeah she's she, wise she gets you know she gets what's going on through the whole movie and then the other one is Hakim but he represents a different side of that because like Whereas Aunt Eller represents the, like, homebody who chooses to just live a, a comely life, but is aware of all the, you know, the nasty stuff out there. Um, Hakim, on the other hand, is, like, part of the problem. He, he knows what's going on out in the world, and he's also part of the problem because he's bringing it in to this kind of innocent landscape of Oklahoma where the people are very naive um, but but lovable and you know they have all these good qualities all they need is some exterior influence to come in and corrupt them which we see in thematically in several different instances throughout the movie the funny thing though is even though he does represent that side of the coin um, he never he doesn't go to the like level of Judd because yeah Judd asks, like, hey, do you sell one of them things where you look through and see a, you know, nudie picture and then there's a button you hit with a blade and you can go down uh, the person looking? Like, and he's like, no, I don't sell anything like that. That's too dangerous. And then, like, later, Will Parker has one from Kansas City and he doesn't really have any idea of what yeah, he has. It's he a, doesn't know it's a knife. It's a, he thinks it's a gift for his uh, future father in law. And um, he's when he's trying to sell his worldly or the the presents he got to get money to possibly marry Ado Annie, um, he's trying to sell that to Hakeem, and Hakeem's like, no, I don't, I don't buy those, and also like it's not just something you look through because he doesn't know about the knife, and but then Judd comes along yeah. and is like, I'll take it. Yeah, isn't I mean I think that's fascinating that Will Parker brings in this weapon that's like a physical representation of the themes of the of the play because it's like you look into it and it shows a lady getting undressed like you turn it and she gets undressed um but it literally has this knife in it so it's like the 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 exterior influence of the world coming into um this pristine uh, pristine territory yeah pristine territory they're not even a state yet they're just you know everything's optimism and um but out there there's this influence coming in and like all represented in this one device that's like you know um bad morals represented by the the stripper and the knife which represents you know the danger violence that violence and like literally the danger that comes from um being immoral yeah. and bringing that stuff into your life and uh rod steiger's character judd judd fry is um you know the embodiment of that yeah Yep, it's, um, it is an interesting thing that, I don't know, because in some ways, like, 
all these little personal relationships kind of represent wider society just like a good western should yeah and it really is a western musical Mm -hmm. i mean it's got all the tropes there you have the the homesteaders versus the ranchers that's there and you have the influence of like how how do we want to build our society settling down because oklahoma is just about to become a state so they're trying to decide you know how do we balance becoming civilized and also you know keeping our humble uh optimism that we currently have Um, all that stuff's there so it really i think it does treat western themes really well yeah um blah 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 blah. i guess just thinking of the different actors um gene nelson is that his name yeah funny thing to me like i mean he is a he's a great dancer but um what we learned in the audio commentary is he was like i guess the ladies man in the sense that all the ladies had crushes on him and they're like oh you know he's a funny guy and good dancer great dancer and made you feel like you're the only person in the room when you were talking to him and it's interesting to me because it's like to me no offense he just i mean now that i've seen the movie several times i think i could remember his face but Probably the first two times I saw the movie, I and you said, what does he look like? I'd be like, I don't really remember. <laughs> like, vague. But um, He seems like somebody that people in the 50s would find attractive. Yeah, that's probably true, and it was in the 50s, yeah. so there well, you go. There you go. But he became a dancer because he saw um, Fred Astaire when he was a boy, and he was like, wow, inspirational, and he wanted to do the same thing. He was a good dancer, wasn't he? Yeah, apparently he was very well regarded, and I mean, it's his big dance numbers fun, and he's a really funny actor too because he's such an idiot. Yeah. Like, he he gets the fifty dollars from Hakeem, and he dramatically runs into the luncheon basket bidding thing, and he's like, "I'll lay down fifty dollars for Ado Annie's basket," like this dramatic gesture. And he thinks that means that he can marry her. And it's like, well, you didn't keep the $50 very long. <laughs> You're supposed to be worth $50. <laughs> yeah, not, like, have it to spend it right yeah. away. But, yeah, it's it's fun. There are a lot of funny moments. So I think one one thing, one other thing we wanted to address was the, um, the ballet in the middle of the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's... Uh, Another one in a succession of movies that had included ballets, probably, I don't know if starting with The Red Shoes, the Powell and Pressburger English film, um, but definitely that was a big influence. And then Gene Kelly saw that movie and wanted to do it in An American in Paris. And he had a ballet in that movie and um, Singing in the Rain has a ballet. But those, Gene Kelly's movies ended with the ballets and in this one it's more in the middle. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's a dream sequence and kind of cool that the, the main actor, Shirley Jones and, um, Curly or, uh, blah, 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 Gordon McRae, Gordon McRae are replaced by two dancers, which is great because they can actually dance. Yeah. And, but it's like in this Bambi dream, is, they, uh, they, they literally, they literally hand off like the two, the two actors are there and they go up and kind of tag the dancers and then they hand off okay, now you represent me, and then they're represented by these two dancers in the ballet, which is really pretty good. And again, the, that the choreography. Um, yeah. But then, you know, right in the middle, 
they're dancing and everything seems fine. And then in comes Rod Steiger playing Judd. Yeah, she's about to get married to Curly and she lifts her veil. And instead of Curly, who is it? It's Judd, the real thing. Yeah, it's Judd. And it's not an actor portraying Judd. It's actually Rod Steiger. And um, you could say that that was because he wanted to do all of his own stuff in this movie because he was a method actor. Mm -hmm. He didn't want to be represented by anyone. So they didn't get an actor to represent him. But um, we think it's really interesting that, like, the power that that brings, that it's two dancers representing the two main actors, but then when it's really Judd, Mm-hmm. Like, you know, his face... It's just kind of a shock. just kind of shocks you. And it's like it's like how a real dream would be. It's like, my, my thoughts can't escape this person. I'm trying to forget. I'm trying to have this fantasy. But then there's this thing here that's weighing on me, and I can't forget it. And it's scary. And I, I think it has a really <laughs> nice uh, effect. Yeah, that was a really good observation you had. Because you're like, oh, it's like really jarring and menacing and i mean it's because i mean imagine if it was just here's an actor who is supposed to be judd and it's like we have no emotional connection with him i mean it's just like okay there's some guy who's pretending to be judd and we're supposed to be scared but then you see the real thing and he actually does like he's an intense guy and anything we've seen him in he's very intense apparently he was like that in real life too yeah, and so it's just like, I don't know, it's sort of visceral when you see it in yeah. the dream sequence. And then later when there's the, I don't know, there there's a lot of cool symbols in the ballet sequence, like the stairs going, like in the saloon type setting, um, there's just a disembodied set of stairs going up, and I always thought it was just like a minimalist thing. Yeah. Um, but... Um, there was a good artistic interpretation that, well, this is her dream, and it just represents that, like, upstairs in a saloon, she doesn't want to think about what's up there, doesn't really know exactly what's up there, or just doesn't want to think about it. And so it's just this... She can only imagine, yeah. She yeah she doesn't want to picture what's at the end of the staircase. Yep. And and it's it ties back to the conversation between Hakeem and Edo Annie, when he was talking about taking her to uh some town with a hotel and basically like, a brothel upstairs is paradise yeah and and she, and she says oh it's just a bunch of rooms i thought it was just a bunch of bedrooms yeah. <laughs> it's like but for you and me it could be paradise or whatever but yeah yeah and i i think that's one of the things i like about this movie is it's rated g i mean it's it's great family entertainment but at the same time, you can see in it... There's a lot of adult things. So many things that are very deep and dark. But uh, I think that's the genius of Rodgers and Hammerstein, is they can treat all of these very dark themes um, and treat them in a way where every member of your family can process them. And the you know the more you read into it, the more depth you can get out of it. Whatever yeah. you want to get out of it, you can get out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's that's probably a reason why I um, strongly recommend reassessing this movie, if you haven't seen it in a while. Uh, I think it's one of the great 50s musicals. And for me personally, it's like not all of the Rodgers and Hammerstein movies are, are great. Like, you can appreciate the music usually in all of them. Um, like, King and I is great. 
this one is solid to me. I think it's cool, mm-hmm. and I think it's neat that it's in a real live setting where they planted a real cornfield for it and built a real house. I think it looks nice. Um, uh, carousel, mm, it drags a bit to me, and it's kind of depressing and not so fun because the Gordon McRae character is just, like, not that pleasant and hits his wife and... Like, it's just kind of depressing, actually. And, I mean, it has some great moments, great songs. Um, and what else? South Pacific has some good songs, but to me is a little... Has some annoying characters and is also, like, the tinting experiment they were doing with the color thing is so distracting. And I also think is like, I don't know, has some themes I'm not crazy about. And um, Cinderella has good music, but do we always love every film version of that? Well, no, it never really had a film version. It, just, it had TV versions. But, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. So I think Oklahoma is, and, I mean, Sound of Music obviously is wonderful. It's Yeah, it's a great movie. I mean, I think Oklahoma stands up well with the Rodgers and Hammerstein movie adaptations as one of the better ones. Yeah. And it um, stands up well against a lot of other 50s musicals. Um, you know, it's no singing in the rain, but you compare it to others like, for example, Pal Joey uh, or something like that. A lot of 50, 50s musicals were a little um, plotting. I don't know. You Oklahoma, know- for me, doesn't fit in that category. Some people put it in that category. And for me, it's better. And, yeah, that's what I have to say about it. But, yeah, it's it's good. I recommend this movie just as a fun family flick. And I don't... Of all the criticisms I've seen, I haven't exactly understood them. Like, it's too close to the musical. And it's like, in what way? What would you change? Or... It's, I don't know what the other criticisms are. It's too long. He doesn't know what to do with the actors while they're singing. It's like, while they're singing, it's fine. It's when they're not singing that I have more of a problem. That's so true. I agree with that. But, I mean, everyone's entitled to to their opinions, though, for sure. But, yeah. Anyway, this this should be a good family movie night. Um, And is that, I think that pretty much wraps it up, doesn't it? Did you have anything else you wanted to say? I don't think so. All right. Well, I don't either. So thanks for listening, everybody, and let us know your own thoughts on the movie. Um, I can be found on Twitter at at ConFilmBuff. And I'm at Sana McDonough. Thanks, everybody. Till next time. Till next time. Bye.